Welcome to the DC Godcast. Today we're doing something a little bit unique. I'm taking an interview that I was fortunate enough to conduct with a scholar about three years ago, um, almost exactly three years ago, and share it on this podcast. So I hope that the interview is fruitful for you and hope that you enjoy it. Here we go. I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Peter Kreeft, who is a professor at Boston College. He's one of the most well-known Catholic scholars in the world. He's inspired lots of people in their faith and their understanding of it. So thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. This podcast is all about the Bible. And so I created this podcast to try to break open different portions of scripture. And as part of the podcast, I've invited a number of people to be interviewed to share their favorite Bible passage and then to reflect on it. So I'm wondering if you could start by telling us what Bible passage you chose and then read it for us. I chose uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, uh, and I want to change the question a little bit. Okay. Uh, my favorite Bible passage sounds like the one that spontaneously touches me the most emotionally. Uh, this may or may not qualify to be that, but it's certainly uh, the single most important verse in uh, John's gospel, which is the most important gospel, and the gospel is the most important part of the New Testament, and the New Testament is the most important part of the Bible, and the Bible is the most important book in the world. So this is, so to speak, the most important verse in the world. All right, so we've got some unpacking to do then. Uh, could you start by reading the most important verse in the world then? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Could you first maybe explain why you made the claim that John's Gospel is the most, uh, I think you said, important of all of the Gospels? It probes the deepest. Uh, it's the one that was written last by the youngest disciple who lived the longest. Uh, and the basic uh, facts of Christ's life were by that time fairly well known. So John probed more deeply into their meaning. For instance, there are only seven miracles listed in John's Gospel, which is considerably fewer than those in the three other Gospels, the synoptics. But in each of the seven, he probes much more deeply and extensively into what they mean. So his, his Gospel is the most philosophical, the most theological, uh, kind of uh, deep sea diving probes. So one of the questions I did want to ask you was about this particular verse. How does this verse set up what's going to happen throughout the gospel? Because like you said, John's gospel is unique in many, many ways. How is this verse the foundation upon which the whole gospel is built? First of all, it connects Jesus with uh, the whole of salvation history. And in fact, the whole of history, because it begins in the same way that Genesis begins in the beginning. Uh, Secondly, it focuses on the center of Christianity, namely the nature of Christ, uh, and it gives what scholars call a high Christology, that is looking at Christ, first of all, from the divine point of view, whereas the other Gospels look at him, first of all, from the human point of view, although, of course, all four Gospels very clearly and strongly affirm his complete humanity and complete divinity. Uh, and thirdly, it gives you uh, the fundamental uh, doctrine of Christianity, the, uh, the thing that all Christians believe and no non-Christians believe, namely uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, that the Father and the Son and later also the Spirit are three in person but one in God. Thus, the word, which is the usual translation of the, the Greek word logos, 
uh, is Jesus' name before the incarnation. Uh, Jesus is his, his human name. And this word both was with God, thus God is at least two, and later it turns out three in person, uh, and yet one God, one being, one substance. So there's a lot that I'd love to unpack from that response. Um, the first thing that I was actually going to ask about later in the interview uh, was actually about the connection between John 1 and Genesis. Could you talk a little bit more about how John uh, presents Jesus as a, a, a new creation of sorts and restarting some elements of creation and then how he intentionally draws back on the language of Genesis? For us in time, the old and the new are opposites. For God, they're not. Because God is eternity, and eternity includes everything that's in time. Uh, and therefore, in God, there's no old and there's no new, because there's no past and there's no future. The past is dead. Nothing in God is dead. The future is not yet. In God, nothing is not yet. So God is simply everything at once. And we are beings in time that receive our being and our attributes and our life and our actions one after another. Uh, Genesis implicitly says that because uh, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, uh, speaks of uh, a God utterly different than the God of the pagans, uh, the one all-powerful God who could create out of nothing. Uh, the Hebrew word there translated create, barach, is a word that doesn't exist in any other ancient language at all, because the concept of a God who could create everything out of nothing was a concept that literally has never entered into any human mind in history except the mind of a Jew or Christians and Muslims who learned it from the Jews. It's a unique concept. And John is plugging into that concept by deliberately beginning his gospel in exactly the same way as Genesis begins, in the beginning, the absolute beginning of everything, of, of, of time itself. And the historical life and career of Jesus of Nazareth is then identified with that beginning. This person, whose eternal name is the Logos, the Word, the, uh, the mind of God, so to speak, uh, is God, is eternal, is from the beginning. So the great paradox of uh, Christianity is that in Jesus, that which by definition is eternal and has no beginning, got a beginning. God added uh, time and humanity to his nature in Christ when he came into time. Thus the equation, the word became flesh, uh, the mortal, temporal human nature, uh, is an equation that is the theological equivalent of Einstein's E equals MC squared. The two fundamental forces, time and eternity, uh, as matter and energy are, are equated, related. So you mentioned earlier how John's gospel uh, presents the, the high Christology and how the other gospels, the synoptic gospels, contain in general lower Christologies. Can, can you address uh, this claim that seems to be increasing in its prevalence throughout our world, that Jesus was just a man and that later on his divine nature was kind of invented by people like John and the church. Yeah, that's a fallacy. And uh, the words high Christology uh, and low Christology are misleading. Uh, there's no contradiction at all between John's gospel and the other three. They all 
present Jesus as human and as divine, as temporal and as eternal. Uh, the point of view is different. The starting point is different. Uh, the other three Gospels have a human starting point. Uh, they tell the story from our point of view, and they work up to uh, Jesus' divinity. Uh, John starts at the other end, so to speak, or the other beginning, uh, with the divine point of view. But to say that there's a contradiction between the two simply doesn't square with reading the text. For instance, the divinity of Christ is just as clearly taught in the three synoptics as it is in, in John's gospel, but more from a human point of view. For instance, Jesus forgives sins. Everybody sins. And the Jews are scandalized by that. And they say, quite rightly, who but God can forgive sins? And they're right. Uh, because all sins are sins against God, but not all sins are sins against any one human being. If you steal my wallet, I have a right to forgive you. But if uh, you steal somebody else's wallet, I don't have a right to forgive you because I'm not the one offended. So that's just one example of many uh, claims to divinity that Jesus makes in, in all of the Gospels. But the starting point is different. The narrative is different. And in other words, to get those... Uh, meanings from the Synoptic Gospels, those readings from the Synoptic Gospels, you have to read carefully and contextually, which is something that I think for, especially for my own students, I have to encourage them to take on the perspective of an original reader of these texts as much as we can, even though that's obviously difficult. Yeah, that's that's a basic principle of all reading, uh, especially narrative. Uh, people often say, I want to interpret this book uh, in light of my own sincere personal belief. That's That's a fundamental mistake. Uh, interpreting the book means figuring out what the author meant. And for that, you don't interpret according to your beliefs, but according to the author's beliefs. Then you dialogue with the author. How do my beliefs square with his? Has he convinced me or has he not? So uh, the science of interpretation is a science of getting out of your mind into the author's mind. So your principle is absolutely right. How did, did Mark see this? Uh, how did Matthew see this? How did Luke, uh, Luke see this? Uh, and when you get into that mindset of the author, uh, there are some surprises. You have to read the book contextually. Uh, Matthew Arnold, the great English literary critic, said the basic principle of reading a book is to try to read it in exactly the same spirit as the author wrote it. And that's such a challenging thing with scripture, just because there is such a wide variety of not only historical context, but also writing styles within those contexts. Yep. yep. It's not just one book, it's, it's a library. It, yeah. yeah. And, that, and that makes the Gospels quite unique. Not only do we have more information about Jesus than about any other modern, uh, pre-modern uh, person, but we have them from four different points of view, four different persons, four different personalities, four different audiences, four different purposes. Matthew's Gospel is written mainly to Jews to show that Jesus is the, the promised Messiah. Mark's mainly to Romans, much more practical, much more uh, action-oriented and, and shorter. Uh, Luke to Greeks, uh, much more sophisticated. Luke was a physician. He emphasizes the healing miracles. Uh, and John to the whole world. It has a much more cosmic and universal scope. Can you talk a little bit about some general principles that as Catholics, when we read the Bible, things that we should be having in the back of our mind, no matter whether you know it's the Gospels or whatever book we're reading, what sort of principles should we be keeping in mind as we're reading the Bible? Well, principles should be based on facts. And let's look at the fact of the Bible. Here is a bunch of books 
which was collected and canonized and taught by the church. Uh, so it's, in a sense, the church that wrote the Bible, uh, the apostles wrote the New Testament, uh, and that defined it by listing its canon, uh, and that bases its teaching on it. So to interpret the Bible without the mind of the church is like interpreting Shakespeare without knowing anything about the English, or to interpret Karl Marx without knowing anything about uh, Russian history. How is it used in history? What historical force did the Bible have? That's not an extraneous question, because the Bible emerges from history. Uh, it is fundamentally a historical narrative with a lot of commentary on it. Uh, and it has to be interpreted in that historical way because we too are in this history. We're in the same story. So, so how do you then read the Bible and look for personal meaning from it? Because you referenced earlier that it's not a wise idea to go to a book of the Bible and say, "What is this? You know, what does this have to say exactly to me, to my circumstance?" Without considering context, how do we appropriately read the Bible in terms of like a personal or uh, you know kind of spiritual reading for ourselves? How do we do that correctly? There's no one way. Uh, as a scholar, you have to take account of history. Uh, as a person who, who is using the Bible, let's say, as prayer, that's not as necessary. Mm -hmm. It can clarify and help, but uh, uh, to simply look at the Bible as God's love letter addressed to you right now and to read it on one level uh, and then to uh, to approach it on a different level as a a historian or as a theologian, nothing wrong with that. Uh, many different angles. Uh, the Bible's truth is like a rainbow. It has many colors. And so again, it comes back to intention, knowing what you're trying to do when you're reading the Bible. Are we trying to pray with it? Are we studying yeah. it? Yeah. And, and, and all of the different intentions have one thing in common. You're not trying to impose your mind on it. You're trying to uh, discover it and let it instruct your mind. Because if it's God's word, then every time you read the Bible, you're in prayer. You're in communion with God. Your mind and God's mind are meeting in some way. But there are many different ways. I'm curious about your personal journey. And I've read some of your own accounts of how you got to the Catholic faith. What role did scripture have in uh, your journey to Catholicism? Well, very similar to that of Scott Hahn. Uh, I had been uh, brought up as a Calvinist rather than a Catholic and been taught that uh, uh, the Bible and the church contradicted each other and the church was the whore of Babylon and that sort of thing. And the more I looked at that claim, the more silly it seemed. Uh, in fact, there were a lot of uh, specifically Catholic, in fact, disturbingly Catholic things that I as a Protestant saw in the Bible. Uh, for instance, the Eucharist. Uh, this is my body. Fundamentalists like to say you must interpret everything in the Bible literally. Uh, that's the one verse that they will not interpret literally. Obviously, you've had quite a career in theology and in philosophy. Can you give some advice to young students who are studying theology, maybe in high school or in college? What would you recommend to them if they're interested in theology? How, how can they continue deepening not only their faith, but their the real study of theology? Well, Instead of professional advice, let me give you some, some personal or psychological advice. It comes straight from Jesus. He says to his disciples, you must be both as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Uh, read questioningly, especially when you're reading the theologians. Uh, theologians are not prophets. They might be right. They might be wrong. 
but uh, don't ever stop asking questions. On the other hand, uh, try to submit your mind to the truth, whatever and wherever it is. So both active and passive, both critical and receptive. Well, I do want to be respectful of your time. Uh, so I, I just want to, again, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Uh, thank you for sharing some of your thoughts. Uh, before we conclude at the very beginning of our conversation, I phrased the question as your favorite Bible passage. And you said that you might've had a different answer to that question um, as opposed to what you consider to be the most important verse of the Bible. Off the top of your head, do you have a favorite verse of scripture? Yeah, the one that helps me the most and that uh, surprises me the most and challenges me the most, I think, is Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good to those who love God. Uh, that's hard to believe. It certainly looks in this world that uh, uh, that's not true. And yet it must be true uh, unless atheism is right. Because if God is all powerful and can do anything and is all wise and knows everything, and is all good and has therefore only our best good in mind, then that logically follows. So that's a, a, a kind of test of faith. And if you interpret your whole life in light of that truth, uh, everything looks different. And I think especially in the context that we're living right now, or everyone's under, basically under lock and key, that can be easy to lose sight of. So I think that's a, a wise reminder that all things work for good in some way uh, for those who love God. Every age has its own obstacles and challenges to overcome. Uh, we're not the only or the first or the best or the worst. We're like the rest of humanity. Well, with that, I think we'll wrap up our conversation for today. So again, a huge thank you to Dr. Peter Crave for joining me today on The Lamb and the Scroll. I really appreciate your time and all the insight that you've been able to offer us. And a huge you're welcome to you, and God bless your work. <laughs>